This is Art House Roadshow, a podcast on film, faith, and mental health with your hosts, Kyle Myers and Hank Spaulding. joined again uh, with my good friend and co-host uh, Kyle Myers. Uh, we're excited today uh, because this is episode 11, uh, which means one episode left until our one year anniversary where we will talk about Halloween ends. If you remember or have been a longtime listener of the podcast, you'll know that the first podcast talked about Halloween Kills, which was last year and Halloween in general. So we're excited to spend that time with you um and yeah we're excited episode 11 so how are you doing kyle doing good man i'm doing good dr hank how are you doing i'm doing all right it's uh it's a good week it's a stressful week but it's a good week and i'm just excited to be spending some time with you and our many listeners out there yeah that's right yeah it's it's interesting like uh reflecting on kind of a year of doing this i've been going back through and looking at uh podcasts and things the first podcast is probably the most popular in terms of, of views but our most like popular in terms of most engagement was the terrence malick one that's right um that i've that i've seen and so that's been really cool uh, to check out but i mean now that you're kind of looking back at a year here what are, what have been some kind of your reflections on um on the road show as we've kind of done it yeah for myself uh, more of just the times when i've been able one to really invest um in going back and watching some movies the uh hunger stands out going mm-hmm. back to some of the um northern ireland mm-hmm. uh movies that conflict um and most surprising is probably beast of no nation yeah um that director and and some of his films and the themes and that i thought were really uh, in- interesting and um yeah just in-depth discussion i enjoyed that yeah i really enjoyed the um kind of our theme you, you talked about in terms of the passion of that's you know, right uh, the passion of uh, Joan of Arc. We did the passion uh, of looking at, you know, Martin, I'm uh, not Martin Scorsese. That's today uh, of uh, Terrence Malkit films and just all different kinds of um, really interesting themes. Those are my favorite kind of arc of our, uh, I guess, developed theology. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And there's more to come. Uh, maybe a writing project in the future. We'll see. We'll, we'll publish right. the yeah, art yeah. house road show, the book <laughs> and, and right. maybe some chapters and some other things, but um, yeah, there's there's only more to come. Uh, official merch is on the way, uh, <laughs> which is going to be great. You can join our Patreon. Uh, well, we're on our way to becoming influencers, I think, here. Yeah, uh, here we go. Yes. That's yes. great. <laughs> trucker hats. That's right. Trucker hats. That's what we want. That's what we want. Well, uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah, just uh, if you ever have any questions for us or if you want to engage us. So, for example, um, I think last week uh, we or last week, last uh, episode, episode 10, we talked a little bit more about the theme of guilt and to grief. That was a question from a viewer. And so if you have questions, uh, feel free to reach out to us. We would love to engage with you. Um, one of our listeners, one of our loyal listeners, is actually celebrating his 13th birthday right. this week. So we'd like to give a special uh, shout-out uh, to Cash Spraker uh, for his uh, attention to the show. And we hope you have a good time with your family at the Great Wolf Lodge. But thanks for listening. Right and thanks on. for all of your uh, wonderful questions. And uh, we will um, hopefully uh, be celebrating with you come Saturday. Uh, but anyway, so if you're a listener to the podcast and would like to reach out to us, there's many ways to do it. We're on Instagram and Twitter, um, and also us individually at Duke13Theo at Cinema1978. That's Kyle and my uh, 
uh, Twitter handles, feel free to reach out to us. Um, but we, we'd love to talk. Uh, so for our first segment, as always, is what are you watching? This is a good opportunity for us just to tell our listeners kind of what is on our brains and what we're kind of into um, right now in this very season. So uh, Kyle, what are you watching? Yeah, well, a couple of things. Um, one is engaging with the original The Fly mm-hmm. and its sequel, The Return of the Fly, <laughs> uh, which I don't know if you've have you seen those. I've seen the first one, the Jeff Goldblum one, right? The, yeah, well, that, yeah, so it's from the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's uh, body horror-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original is from 1958. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. black and white with uh, Vincent Price. Oh, okay. In both yeah. that one and the sequel. Um, are actually highly upsetting in their own ways, mm-hmm. uh, even with the uh, limitation. I mean, 1950s was um, known for its innovation of special effects, which mm-hmm. don't look like innovation anymore, but um, but still something profoundly upsetting about uh, where that movie goes and kind of it's dealing with uh, modern science, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, and those questions and ethics which is uh, a lot of fun. And I haven't actually got through The Return, but The Return already has some very upsetting uh, sequences uh, before even getting to the end. So I don't know why it bothers me so much, but it does. So I'm sure I'll be appalled at the remake. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it only can get worse. Rob Zombie, I hear, is doing the next one. Oh, wow. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah. But, like, that's that, the, that's that the totally progression, right? Yeah, no yeah. doubt. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, I, you know, it's interesting. We talked about this a little bit with Hitchcock, which I think also, just reflecting back, that was, that was that's a conversation I enjoyed. Just because I've loved Hitchcock since before I knew I liked movies, and <laughs> I sure. mean it's it's incredible. Like, uh, but the idea of like these older kind of movies and their own ability to communicate terror subtly, yeah. Um, I mean, we've talked about how Hitchcock was a master at that. Um, like even something from like um, Edgar Allan Poe, like even before movies were a thing. I mean, his ability to communicate something that was truly horrific mm-hmm. in a way that like entice your imagination is something really compelling to me i think i i think in some sense i enjoy that um sure so like uh i don't i mean this is a this is a cheap example but um do you i mean you've watched the empire strikes back with star wars like they switch from the uh the scene where um luke is hanging upside down about to get eaten by the snow monster originally you didn't really see the full monster so you got to imagine what this thing really kind of looked like I enjoy that that kind of subtlety much more than seeing the full thing. Yeah. Um, which you don't really. There's not a lot of subtlety in, in a lot of horror films today, but that's really cool. I'll have to check those yeah, 100. out. I had this. I am today years old when I realized that The Fly with Jeff Goldblum wasn't the first one. That's right. So, which is why when you said that, I was a little shocked because I know that body like torture is not your yeah, scene. Yeah, it's not my thing. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, well that's cool. That's, but I think uh, yeah, I'm still going to make the uh, make my way to that and its sequel as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, and so you've also Try watched that. some Hitchcock recently. Yeah. So Foreign Correspondent, which was his 1940, mm-hmm. um, so Great Britain basically called back um, all of their uh, people who had migrated to Hollywood, actors, directors, people working there. Um, to <clears throat> prepare, they had not yet in, in, uh, entered the war or been entered into it uh, by Germany attacking them, uh, but they were preparing for that. And Hitchcock, his story is that he was 40 years old uh, and very overweight and had a lot of shame around his appearance uh, and just his inability. Like he wasn't going to be able to act, be in any kind of active duty um, as a uh, with where he was at age wise and, and weight wise, and so. Um, he did go back to make this movie, 
and which is actually uh, pretty powerful um, in the end in terms of, one, uh, somewhat prophetic, just as soon as they finished the film, it was only like a week later when the first bombs dropped on Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his kind of call to America to engage in the war basically through the movie mm-hmm. also was, uh, one, powerful in its telling, and two, um, obviously part of what happened. So kind yeah. of a fascinating – that, uh, but then the movie itself is just kind of a genre um, – you know, peace itself, which on its own terms is a lot of fun to watch, um, mm-hmm. but uh, definitely carries a whole other weight based on the fact, the facts mm-hmm. of uh, the culture at the time, what was happening. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Well, yep. you know, I, I think that like the Hitchcock films that aren't like the big five, as you talked about, like there's just so much gold in there mm-hmm. uh, in terms of like what they offer. And, and also, I mean, you mentioned this the last time the, the fact that so much of Hitchcock is put into the films um, and into the work that he does, that it, in some sense they're biographical, like autobiographical in their own sense for him. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of interesting to see that work out for him. Um, well, from Hitchcock to uh, another uh, big time movie director, um, and in some sense, and I, I, this is a question I didn't prep you for, Kyle, but this is just something I'm curious <laughs> about. This is not an intense question, but you know, a lot of films today are seen and i mentioned this last time in terms of like their connection to a broader universe or something like that obviously marvel dc transformers all that kind of stuff big action films but then there's also like you could think of like um like other films are kind of just one shots for certain directors Mm -hmm. like i could name on one hand the amount of directors that i probably know outside of um you know like the people who do these big budget marvel films but you know we don't think of like I mean, even, for example, like Joss Whedon, like he has some films that he's done, but he isn't known as like his own kind of person other than like Firefly and stuff like that. But there are a few directors that kind of have their own aura around them. Like Spielberg is one. Like he's done a lot of different kinds of films. Sure. Um, Jordan Peele is is certainly one kind of uh, Mm -hmm. like modern interpretation of that with horror films. But Martin Scorsese, who we're talking about today through his film Shutter Island, is kind of one of those big time... Uh, directors whom you know has done a lot of different things but he's more famous probably than his movies are in a certain sense because people know him so what what is kind of the shift here why like what do you think about the idea of like movies versus like big time directors and um, I didn't ask that well but you know we don't have a lot of like big time personality directors anymore Scorsese is kind of one of the last um, so Spielberg and things like that but um, what do you make of this kind of phenomenon yeah, no, for sure. I mean, well, Scorsese uh, and Spielberg and that whole school mm-hmm. that came out of the uh, 60s um, really uh, kind of held a balance between uh, working within the studio system, being kind of m- maintaining some level of independence and making independent films, but also making studio films, mm-hmm. uh, but all the while maintaining their sen- their kind of auteur uh, nature, which just mm-hmm. means uh, the themes that are in the movies, even if they're very different genres, mm-hmm. uh, again, are, are often very similar. And what you would see you know, it looks like a Spielberg film. This has the themes of a Spielberg film or whatever that you, you know, uh, reference back to. So Scorsese very much, you know, same way, whether he's making a gangster film, which is he's, you know, probably the most well known for. Right. Goodfellas and a Casino and his you know relationship with De Niro and those guys, 
Um, <clears throat> but he's also made, you know, uh, essentially has a spiritual trilogy with this Jesus movie and Kundun, which is about the Dalai Lama, uh, and then Silence, of course, uh, which are just overtly textually uh, spiritual or religious. Mm. Um, and then just has a whole host of other, like this one, Shutter Island, is very much a genre exercise um, in American cinema, but uh, kind of bounces all around to, you know, biographical films to, mm-hmm. um, again, movies like Taxi Driver, just kind of very different. Um, but his themes are often very similar no matter what um, what place he's in. Yeah. In some sense, it feels like an actual kind of artist and like that kind yeah. of style of movie director working with different mediums in terms of like different genres mm-hmm. to communicate similar themes across um, a multitude of experiences. Most of directors, like I said, they kind of do a one-off. They don't really think of like these broad kind of like trilogies, for example, like, you know, I, I always think of, for example, like, um, you know, Lucas, he was a incredible filmmaker, but you know, star Wars will always be kind of like more, um, bigger, I mean, well, not more bigger. That's a not a word, um, but the like Indiana Jones and Star Wars yeah. themselves kind of exceed him to some degree. Um, not saying that it could be made without him, or he's not a great director, or diminishing any of his achievements at all. But you know, Scorsese is kind of larger than life when it comes to his films. Um, well, and Marty too has um, been very engaged in film restoration. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually has a documentary that's a book and a movie called "History: The Journey Through American Movies." Uh, through the first half of the century or so. And so his commentary um, is as great as, you know, his actual engagement. So mm-hmm. he loves movies. Grew up, when he was growing up, he had asthma, so he couldn't do things other kids were doing, which is pretty much being outside uh, and moving around. He was unable to do that, so he was often just dropped off at the movie theater going there with his, his parents. And uh, like Van Gogh, he is a failed uh, seminarian. Oh, wow. Um, he, was, he was studying to be a priest, and that didn't work out, so he became the priest of the movies. <laughs> what a plan B. That's right. I that, know, right? That's so wonderful. Yeah. I, I wish I could fail up like that. <laughs> um, that's so wonderful. Yeah, um, it's painful. It's it painful, is, for sure. Yeah. And for it's Bingo, a, it was, at least. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, uh, I've been watching. There's a friend of mine who's doing kind of a one-man show a play about Vincent. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's... It's been it's been cool to kind of revisit that. Similar to the um, the new C.S. Lewis kind of one man play, mm. The Unexpected Convert. And so there's some really interesting. Um, I mean, obviously this is not like film, but it's you know stage play. Um, but I I've, I'm fascinated by these tortured individuals like Van Gogh and now Scorsese that uh, um, have this great medium. And in some sense, like I know he has been and Spielberg and and a few other big time directors are really critical of like present day Hollywood, which is about uh, largely about most for the most part, like creating these big blockbuster films, yep. like wherever you're at. I mean, it could be anything from Top Gun to, um, to a Marvel movie or something sure. like that. And I think Spielberg said something to the effect recently that it's even hard for him to get funding for mm-hmm. films because they're not all blockbusters. They're not going to have this huge return of, on investment. Yep. And he said, um, and I think Martin Scorsese said something to this, to this effect. It would have been, it would be really hard today for someone like him to actually break into sure. directing because of the way that Hollywood is structured. Um, and I think that was that's a really fascinating idea to think about, like the 
we love the movie still, obviously, but like the, the way that it's kind of structured right now actually prevents the same kind of engagement. I mean, Scorsese can do it today. Spielberg can still do it because they have a name, but they don't, there's no space to create new names. Sure. About that. Sure. Uh, do you have any feelings about that or like thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, I trust that they're right. I mean, partly it's because they came in at a time when the studio fell apart mm-hmm. uh, and what we now refer to as new Hollywood mm-hmm. uh, between 68 and 1980. Uh, again, and all those filmmakers, Coppola, De Palma, uh, again, Spielberg, Scorsese, Paul Schrader, all these guys um, came up in that in a time when um, they could find independent and really just rebuilt the the studio system in a mm-hmm. way, which is why they had so much studio funding. And it was at least Spielberg in the 80s and Lucas. Um, and so anyways, yeah, I think that they came in a very like, yeah, people want more of what's going on in Europe. Mm-hmm kind of movies where now uh, it's not that that's not present obviously you mentioned uh the a24 stuff which is more horror driven but uh or psychological but still like that's a that's a quote-unquote studio that's right. actually bringing in different directors um and and uh, a number of those studios exist that are more like mid-budget level uh, yeah. movies being made now they they do seem to lean uh, more into you know nihilism or horror and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Because again, you know, for whatever reason, people are going to watch those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's obviously part of it. And those movies are are winning awards like crazy. Mm. But then you know, Apple and Netflix and these streaming services um, are obviously invested in some of the independent filmmakers as well. Right. Especially yeah. Especially if they they get them to the award scene and that whole thing. Yeah. I've seen a lot of Sundance um, yeah. film that have come from streaming services now. Mm-hmm. Like, I believe that's also where I first, um, oh man, I'm forgetting the name that won best picture um, last year. I think um, it was from Apple. Oh um, yeah. Power of the dog. No, no, that's not the one. Um, uh, the, yeah. The one with the girl whose family is deaf. Yes. Yep. And well, she we'll, sings. we'll think of it in a second, but yep. Yeah, like that that was one that was very like I was shocked to see that, but just because I wouldn't have thought of something on a streaming service as being Yep. I mean, I still I think generally a traditionalist. Um what I think of I mean, when I was a kid, the movies for me was a very spiritual experience, like Martin Scorsese. My parents would always take me, so it was always bound up also within um my family too. And it's it's really interesting. I, I know I've mentioned on the podcast that for my parents the uh um the first like they weren't allowed to go see movies as a kid because they were uh, my mom especially wasn't because she was grew up Nazarene and that was taboo for a while. My dad's parents still took him even though they knew it was taboo because they're kind of rebels. Um, <laughs> but my mom's first two movies she saw when she was still like she was in her adulthood in her twenties, and it was uh, and I mentioned this it was Rocky. She saw these back to back and Star Wars, the first Star Wars film yeah. that came out in the seventies. Um, Those are both good, yeah. Yeah, and then when my dad became uh, kind of a professor pastor, he he stopped going because he got questions from his congregants, but. Nonetheless, um, I think it was interesting because my mom would still take us to movies. She, that rebellious streak went on to her. So, like, I saw The Lion King and all those Disney movies when I was mm-hmm. a kid. So it was a very spiritual thing for me, too. And I wonder about the new Hollywood um, and the way that it's kind of structured right now. Because on the one hand, you do have the big-budget blockbuster films like the, the Marvels, the, um, the DCs, the, you know, the Top Guns, things like that, the big summer movies like that you traditionally think of. And then on the other hand, you've got the A24 films that a lot of them like skew towards 
nihilism and those kind of things that I haven't, I haven't just, I mean, this is just me. I'm very like open about this. I just struggle with it. Mm-hmm. I struggle with it because I, I remember watching, I enjoy like the witch and, and some of the like um, acrimony and things like that. I think they're really interesting horror films, but I think in some sense, like the, the message that's communicated is, is, fascinatingly bad <laughs> well and, yeah self-protective right like right. It's, we're not going to be vulnerable or hopeful because that's too just too vulnerable yeah and it's like so i mean we can go and i could talk about this forever yeah, but right. there's in some sense like the difference between like something like the witch and for example something like the conjuring is a very different kind of spiritual story which i really appreciate right. what the directors of the conjuring are doing and that they're so close to the warren family in that mm-hmm, sense i mean mm-hmm. i know they both since passed on but like the first Conjuring movie communicates not only a interesting demonic tale about like a story that really happened, but it communicates this profound spiritual insight too, um, which I always really liked. But yeah. you know, anyway, absolutely, uh, <laughs> absolutely, it's great. Yeah, great contrast. Yeah, it's I just it's one of those things that, and I think this is would be the theme of like whatever our writing project would look like is this idea of like what would it look like for cinema. Um, to cease to be nihilistic and offer like, you know, like something hopeful. And for most people who probably listen either to the podcast or the average moviegoer, like they're not thinking this kind of critically about the film, but they're still absorbing the message, mm-hmm. right? The message that kind of impacts. And I, I always thought one of my favorite quotes, I forget what director said this, says the great things about movies is they not only give you stuff to think about, but they help you feel things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, sure. And like you, you can walk away. So for example, like Jaws or Psycho, like people ran out of the theaters after watching them because of the way it made them feel. Mm-hmm. And obviously those are, not like like always positive examples, but what can be mobilized through feeling to make one feel, you know, hope or, or joy or um, healing in a certain sense. Absolutely. Is, is a part of it. And so 100. Anyway, thank you for attending my TED talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I don't want to take too much more time on this, but I do want to just dive into Shutter Island, uh, which is a great film. Um, it's a it's a very interesting film. It's one of the first films that had that I remember watching uh, that the first time I watched it after revisiting it recently that had this kind of huge twist in the middle <laughs> yeah. where the audience had been deceived in some sense by the order of events that if you watch it back, you can see all the signs of like exactly like, okay, well this was, they were telegraphing this or things like that. And sure. So, um, but anyway, yeah. So Shutter Island, what are kind of your uh, thoughts about this film, big picture, uh, Kyle, and you know how it kind of relates to Scorsese? Well, one, you should watch this movie before you listen to our podcast because of that uh, big twist nature. It is a, a certain kind of watch the first time you watch it. And yeah. then the brilliance is, yeah, again, going back the second time, it's like a whole other uh, experience, really, mm-hmm. where not only you get to see the bigger picture of what's happening, mm-hmm. uh, but it actually deepens uh what the kind of underlying mm-hmm. uh trauma and uh struggle actually is yeah 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 so anyways, i'll put the spoiler warning one. that's right yeah. <laughs> spoiler warning for anyone who hasn't watched it yeah i'll put that in the description uh when i launch this to say like hey make sure to watch the film before listening to us but yeah yeah anyway so no, continue. Right on, no. continue. Yeah, for sure man yeah but yeah go ahead and talk more about i'm interested to hear about your uh subsequent uh, watches of the movie and kind of where you've landed on it now. Well, I, th- I think one of the things that I really like about this film is that um, it's there's two themes here, truth and trust that seem to kind of go throughout the film. Um, you know, as the main character starts mm-hmm. to kind of devolve 
he starts to lose that ability to know what truth is. He's obviously, you know, he's got war trauma in his past. That's very clear. He's, um, he's got personal trauma that he identifies very early. Um, but like, as he goes deeper into the maze in a certain sense, this feels kind of like a, um, a labyrinth in a certain sense, mm. like you, cause they arrive, you know, across the water. That's one of the first shots you see them. They land on this Island. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, he's entering the maze at that point. And the only way out is through. Um, and I, I think that's really profound, mm. but, um, mm -hmm. I, like what is, what Journey is truth? Wars, yeah. yeah. What is truth in that sense? I mean, obviously like I, every, now every time, uh, Kyle has ruined me because every time I see light and water, I'm like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. this is, this is the, I need to pay attention. Right. Something's important here. So he comes across the water here yeah. uh, in a really powerful way. That's how you start the film. But you know, like, I, I don't know, like that truth and trust kind of tension, right? What he has to kind of in the end, like ultimately he just doubles down on trust you know trust for what he knows to be true but the truth kind of exists independent of that uh in a certain sense of how the uh, the people that are at the prison are trying to help him see what is true absolutely in, in a really interesting way um I, I mean i've got some other thoughts here about that but i i uh, especially like a really big philosophical theme that i really like especially if you're someone who likes modern philosophy but um that I, that tension between truth and trust is is a really interesting theme that I, I enjoy when watching this film. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, and there is you know another thing that's been uh, I think really toxic with uh, movie criticism, particularly YouTube criticism, yeah. has uh, you know a lot of videos to get a lot of watches regarding plot holes um, and mm -hmm. honest trailers. You know, and right? All that yeah. Kind of stuff. So yeah, we're kind yeah. of obsessed with uh, picking these things apart um, when often. That's not even the point, right? right? Um, and you're doing yourself a, a disservice if you're watching the movie and saying, well, that's not realistic or that's dumb. What a big plot hole. Uh, you're likely going to miss the themes that the directors are actually going after or the authors of the book. This was adapted. Right. Um, yes. And uh, again, you know, those can be fun arguments and, and exercises, but ultimately, especially with a, a um, director like Scorsese, you're also going to miss a lot if you're only paying attention to the plot and the yeah. plot holes. Yeah, there's a really fascinating article that I um, I need to send you, uh, Kyle, that actually talks about how a lot of movies have tried to um, make their movies to such a degree That's that right. it can't be picked apart right. by an honest trailer. Right. Um, which is fascinating because Marvel's done this, right? Yep. They're, they're famous for doing this. That's why the the Russo brothers, for example, like have gotten so many of their films is because they were able to construct a plot hole less yeah, <laughs> uh, right. film. But I mean, a lot of other films, I mean, not just Marvel films, but all kinds of films are trying to do that. And there's something lost in that. Absolutely. In a certain sense. And especially like the ability to do something like, I always think of, for example, like what Malick does. Like that's not a sequential plot that's trying to move in a single direction right. for a lot of his films. I mean, yep. some of them do like band of, I mean like thin red line. I almost said band yeah. of brothers there, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like some of them do, but not all of them. And so that you lose something. And I think the idea for example, of myth, which doesn't mean like myth busters, like false, but a myth <laughs> is like a, right, 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 right. I think a powerful tool in, in yep. this kind of communicating. So yeah. That's fascinating. So, yeah, is there like a specific specific plot hole that like you're thinking about as it relates to this film? Not necessarily, mm -hmm. um, but just that that's a temptation, mm -hmm. um, and especially for a, a film that's building itself around you know these different layers uh, and how the plot functions, right? And why the plot you know functions, I think, mm -hmm. is a great question. Yes. Uh, to what end? Um, and to me, 
uh, endings always matter uh, almost exclusively the most in terms of like what you get out of it. Yeah. Whether it's mysterious, I mean, there's a mystery at the end of this one, mm-hmm. uh, or the movie Sicario is another one that comes to mind. Yes. Um, that is has a more mysterious ending, which I, I it leaves it up to interpretation in a way. Yep. Uh, but then there are also definitely like I you know um, things that you can press into with your mm-hmm. ending that really open it up regarding. You know, again, psychology, philosophy, and, mm-hmm. and faith—all those things that can uh, that I really gravitate towards with that. And so, I think mm-hmm. this film definitely does that. Whether or not the plot actually makes any sense, or you could really pull something—that would be the thing. Can you really pull something off like this? This psychological labyrinth that they create for this right. guy to go through, and and whatever. Uh, um, <clears throat> probably not. That sounds ridiculous to have everybody on board with the same idea and it actually go well. Um, mm-hmm. and also not just make things worse, but the whole thing is constructed as a way of um, looking at the tragedy that's actually mm-hmm. um, at the, the core and the trauma that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's core to the film. Yeah, and I mean, it's very brutal, the trauma is. Yep. You know, and like it's, it's one of those things that's fascinating to me because on the watch through, like the rewatch through, you kind of see the scenes that, that – um, see the like the moments when they try to hint at there's more going on here than what you the audience has been clued in on to this point um, and subtle shifts the closer he gets to the center even like his wardrobe is changing his demeanor yeah, that's is changing right. that's right he's starting to unravel a little bit more in some sense it's also like um, we talked about this when it comes to um, annihilation um, like mm-hmm. the closer you get to the center the more unmade you become mm-hmm. in a certain another sense. lighthouse movie that's right mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. exactly uh, i didn't make that connection thank you for doing yep. that <laughs> oh, that was not intentional so yeah uh but yeah so there's a sense in which like this is and also i mean one of the things i really enjoy about this film is like the the real just the stable of great actors um, I mean, Max von Sydow mm-hmm, is, is someone mm-hmm. that I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, it's a Leo movie, Leo DiCaprio. You got Mark Ruffalo in there, Ben Kingsley, uh, Michelle Williams, who I really like. Um, and I another favorite of mine, he's, he's not like a big time, in, he's not like a main actor. He's, he plays a lot of supporting roles, but John Carroll Lynch. Um, mm. And I, I really like him a lot, too. He's great. Uh, yeah, he's been, he was in a movie recently about the um, uh, – I forget the the trial of like the Chicago Six or something like that. I forget that, but anyway, lot, just such great actors here too. Emily Mortimer, you know, like those really great actors. But anyway, one hundred, yeah. So, um, I, I mean, I don't know how much we want to want to dive into the minutia of the plot here. Um, but it's, I mean, it's a really interesting film. They come in and they basically you see Leo and his partner um, coming to this island to interview uh, some people. Uh, and related to relationship to a string of murders. Um, and so it's one of those things that I really enjoy um, how little you do know. I like the stories that kind of drop you in the middle of the plot and then you figure out things on the sure, back end. Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Because it keeps me engaged. Um, but, you know, the Leo's character is Teddy Daniels. Um, he uh, is an, he's seen as, he's an agent, like a, I think he's federal, right? I don't know why I'm forgetting that. Like he's, he's part of yeah. the yep. FBI and he's looking for um, basically the long story short again spoilers please watch the movie um he's actually a patient at the hospital and this is a uh, at the at the i guess prison hospital um, mm-hmm. yeah uh, well, that's important that's yep. right um it is a prison it there's is a, prison. a lot of prisons happening right yeah and there's several very good yeah and and one of those things he's he basically finds out in the end that the killer that he's looking for is actually himself um he's invented this character uh played by elias Cote- 
Curtius, I mm. think, yes, and uh, named um, Latus, um, and he's uh, basically a. Uh, uh, He's, he's invented this person to kind of deal with his trauma that to disassociate from the fact that he did these brutal things. And so the hospital tries and let, like plays into the delusion to see if they can get him to realize what he has done. Yep. And like you said, Kyle, at the end, it's kind of left open to interpretation what's happening. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think, too, I mean, the brutal things, there's some question about how much – uh, how brutal he actually was in his war trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, they bring up whether or not he actually shot uh, that whole sequence when they are shooting the soldiers, uh, when everybody gets you know ramped up. But uh, regardless, he definitely witnessed trauma there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then his personal trauma is related to uh, his wife, who was also very mentally ill, uh, schizophrenic maybe or whatever, but uh, was deeply, deeply um uh, just out of her mind mm-hmm. and, and ended up killing their children, drowning their children on purpose and mm-hmm. then disassociating even from that uh, emotionally, uh, certainly. <clears throat> and so Teddy, uh, which is his you know name, we call him most of the time, the Caprio uh, character. Uh, Teddy uh, is obviously, when he discovers this, you don't discover this whole sequence till the very end of the movie. Once he discovers that, he ends up uh, killing his wife uh, in that, but then taking on the guilt for the kids dying because he knew how sick she was on some level and didn't do anything about it. So then blamed himself and took on the guilt uh, for his kids being dead and for this whole thing happening. And so his you know character he creates disassociation uh, is in large part because he can't he can't grieve. Mm-hmm. You know, he can't move to grief, mm-hmm. um, and the guilt is too overwhelming to him to um, encounter something like forgiveness or acceptance. Um, he can't do any of that. So he just literally creates another version of himself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I, it's one of those things that like I I think there's a few movies since then I've tried to do this kind of twist um, that he comes to at the end, realizing that he's the one who's done these things. And then also, like you said, taking on the guilt of what his wife has done. And obviously there's a few moments like throughout the film that kind of gestures to, like one of the killers that he like the killer that he invents like one of the victims they talk about is actually his wife um which is obviously like this huge moment where you're supposed to be like ah on the watchback like okay there's where it's first talking about this Mm -hmm. because they're trying to the people in the hospital trying to help him see um that that it's him he's not like this person he's invented isn't real um and, and in some sense like so now this is the question so this the uh the spiritual side of this he's a failed seminarian what's what do you think is the spiritual message of shutter island in that way well spirit so it has spiritual context everywhere but i've right. got a few things that i uh wrote wrote down um but looking at even though the film ends up being tragic and i will talk about the end and his you know to live as a monster or die a good man question mm-hmm. um but throughout the the movie um, you see, one, there's uh, a very obvious Jesus tattoo mm-hmm. uh, and with one of the prison mates uh, or patients um, with the Your Will Be Done quote. Uh, at one point, they go into a tomb, him and his buddy, Teddy and his partner, uh, literally go into a tomb, mm-hmm. um, and then the doors fly open and light floods in to that situation. Mm. Uh, water is everywhere throughout the film, uh, even sometimes inside places that they're at. It's raining. Right. Um, 
And but I think water, in a way, inevitably is inverted. Uh, it's kind of an anti-baptism. Uh, he even quotes at the beginning when he's on the ship coming to the, the shore that he can't stomach the water, uh, as if to say, I can't stomach baptism. Mm. Like, there's no resurrection for me. Uh, again, part of the tragedy. Um, and so uh, and there's obviously a dark night uh, with the storm that happens. There are ashes in one scene. The lighthouse is very present and even coming around to the hopeful mm-hmm. part of the lighthouse. Um, there's a whole purgatory scene in Ward C, which is their like um, uh, intense uh, lockdown prison for the worst criminals that they have there. Uh, that Teddy goes into to discover something about um, himself mm-hmm. that he's not ready to accept. Um, there are a number of references to Christ and God, and there's even a radio one that comes in a couple of different times uh, with a, pa- a preacher talking about John 5, uh, take up your bed and walk, the healing on the Sabbath from the man who's been sick for 38 years, mm. um, which I'm almost sure uh, Marty put that in there. I doubt that that was in the book. <laughs> um, yeah. And then you have, you know, a couple sequences of fire, so the fires of hell, and even her bleeding from the stomach, uh, you know, is a reference to abortion in its own way, mm-hmm. aborting, drowning her own children, but just the abortion of the whole thing mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. is very prominent. And so, um, and looking at that, looking at from post-traumatic stress, you know, I wrote earlier today uh, that PTSD and trauma is in part our inability to grieve, right, and find mm-hmm. forgiveness and acceptance within whatever that trauma is, especially mm-hmm. if we're responsible for that right. trauma. Um, so instead, we find ourselves imprisoned and tortured by an excessive form of guilt, which is itself like a never-ending storm. And the big storm they have is at one point referred to uh, as Kansas, which is a Wizard of Oz reference, right? right? <clears throat> which gives you know a meaning even to the plot twist, I think. Yeah, and I one of the powerful things, and I'm hearing kind of in your, I mean, it's obviously very rich in terms of its metaphors and the, the symbolism that it has and the way that it challenges us. But, and again, not to belabor this point, because I know this is your, <laughs> this is your idea, but I'm, what I'm hearing you say yep. is like, it's a, they're trying to, in a sense, move him from guilt to grief. Mm-hmm. Um, his guilt is so all-consuming that he's completely disassociated from who he was and created someone that can bear the full weight of his guilt. Yeah. Uh, which in certain senses is a weird kind of Christological. But I'll come back to that in a second. Yeah, that's yeah. a great point. So I, that's, I mean, that's the challenge, though, is, is how like they're trying to move him to grief. And I, I love that ending phrase that you brought up already, you know, better to die a hero than to, you know, live as a monster and things mm-hmm. like that. And that itself is, it has some kind of conversation with that idea of like that movement to grief. And maybe that is the movement of grief. Um, and that's the where it's open for interpretation. You know, I'll I'll wait for you to tell me what your <laughs> what your what yeah, your right. thoughts on that are. I mean, obviously for me, I mean when I think about that and I hear that, um, I I go back to I mean as an ethicist, I think about like what war does. I mean, obviously there are lots of traditions about war that um, talk about just war, and I think those are good and and have really great insights and theological connotations as well. Sure. But one of the things that we know about war, especially in the recent, um, there's been a lot of literature written recently about moral injury. And even if in a just war, one kills for the sake of protecting the innocent, it has an imprint. And I I don't think there's any shame in recognizing that. Yep. Um, That it causes someone to have to, you know, it's not a natural thing for humans to kill. You have to be trained how to do it yeah in a certain sense but that again leaves its mark and so 
the challenge of war in a certain sense, when I watch this as an ethicist who thinks a lot about the war question, you know, it, it really actually thinks about the ways in which we're unmade and remade in the process of like having to go through traumatic things like that. And theologically, what does it mean to talk about peace in a certain sense? And, it, yeah. and, fa and fascinatingly enough, I think I map in a certain sense, like silence over top of this mm. and think about how in the end, the person like, you know, he's left alone. Uh, Teddy is mm -hmm. to, to answer this question in a certain sense. When at the end of that film, like here's someone who's been unmade because of the violence of what's happening in Japan. But you know, that moment where Christ gives him permission yeah. to lay his burden on him. Yeah. I think of that as such a profound, interesting, and you talk about the themes no kind doubt. of showing up in, well, yeah. in multiple films. Like that's such an interesting, like a a Christological giving over yeah. of of the ways we've been unmade into Christ, and I, you know, I always that scene it gets me, <laughs> uh, just because I find it so powerful. But also, I think that's here too with Teddy. Uh, it's obviously not explicit. There's no like voiceover and things like that. But right. but it's there. You yeah. know that idea of like he's wrestling with this idea of being hero and monster, and I don't think that our lives are too neatly. Um, put in those two categories either. I think there's a little bit of both. And it's not to say that, you know, like war or something like that is never justified. It's just to say the things that we become in the meantime oftentimes are quite horrific. Um, and that's challenging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I wonder your thoughts too about the brief, uh, which also seemed like a transitional moment for Teddy. Um, but the conversation when it gets picked up by the warden mm -hmm. and the warden talks about being men of violence. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, you know, the world, his, his worldview is basically that, uh, you know, my violence out, you know, uh, being bigger and stronger than your violence is mm -hmm. the goal, right? Mm -hmm. um, bringing up his own kind of ethical dilemma. But um, <clears throat> that seems to be, you know, another turning point for Teddy potentially towards the choice he does make mm -hmm. um, at the at the end that he's capable of making, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I... But anyways, yeah, I didn't know if that conversation had anything to do with that, too. No, it does. I mean, in some sense, I mean, I, like, I, I've always had... Uh, there's a challenge when it comes to, like, this idea of, like, violence in, in a certain sense. Like, we always think of, like, there's difference between, like, justified violence and unjustified violence, which is true. That's an ethical distinction. Um, I, there's obviously a big difference between murder and, and killing, like yep. in terms of like what one connotes and especially in like prisons, you know, one of the things that's really hard is that, I mean, there's a spectrum, there's prisons who do this well, there are prisons who don't do this well. I think, especially here at like MVNU, like the goal of like criminal justice is to think of like healing and reform. Yeah. But for restorative many, justice, restorative sure. justice, exactly. Yeah. Um, the idea of, of like violence, especially in prisons, as a way of like out governing the violence that is there. Um, and I've always thought about this too in this way. And this is hard because it hasn't been tried very often. We often think of like we have to, the person with the bigger stick is the one who gets yep. to dictate the story. But violence in itself just creates cyclical like patterns in our own life of violence just creating more violence in my and, and in some sense like you have to interrupt and again this is the i think the power of the crucifixion you have to interrupt that in some sense with something an act of peace yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. that's the only way to send it turn on towards the, yeah, something different turn yeah. towards something different and so this the language of like the men of violence itself for me obviously it's it's pushing teddy further on into his into the into the labyrinth as we've talked about um but in some sense, it's also an opportunity for that to be interrupted. <laughs> yeah, sure. And in some sense, it's like the path not taken. 
Um, and some of these choices are made for us. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people who are in prison, I mean, this is a more meta thing. Like they've experienced horrific traumas themselves. It's not to yep. ever justify what they've done if they've ended up there for something, especially if it's violent. Not, not to excuse it at all, but to recognize the complex beings that we are. <laughs> yeah, sure. And especially with Teddy even, right? Yeah. Like his own trauma from war came home and, and he came home with that and it impacted the life that he had with his wife. Yeah. And I mean, he, she had her own trauma and she had her own mental health issues that she was dealing with. But nonetheless, these things create cycles of violence yep. that unless they're interrupted with some greater story of peace will continue to impact the world yep. around us. So yep. that may not have Again, been what you're looking for. Again, often through grief, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That, that has to, we have to move through that. Otherwise, all we have is control. Yes. Right? So good. And Absolutely so, right. which is its own, you know, guilt and control is its own prison. And this is, a, these are extreme stories. We tell extreme stories to kind of, you know, highlight uh, some of these things. But for some of us, it's not even recognizable um, to us or obvious to us because control feels so good. It does. Right? And it, it does. does. And grief, you know, uh, that that allowing for other feelings, difficult feelings to come in, you know, it's, is hard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's the perfect, I mean, liturgically, obviously. And I, I know that your family is from a, a very robust liturgical mm -hmm. tradition. I mean, this is the movement of the the whole the three holy days, the tritium. Yeah. Uh, from Good Friday, which is really a, a moment of guilt. Um, to grief, which is Holy Saturday, ultimately to resurrection. Yeah, um, and I, that's the I think the journey that that we're supposed to celebrate within yeah. within uh, even the Scorsese films. I mean, yeah. like I said, I haven't watched a ton of them. I mean, I've watched Goodfellas, who hasn't, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and things like that. But you know, the ideas of of his films is a, a really, in some sense, is a repetition of that. Yeah. Oh, 100, um, 100. Yeah. Yeah, that's great and great to, again, bring that kind of. Um, three-day journey perspective, death to resurrection perspective, guilt to grief. Um, even in that, Jesus taking on our guilt, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, bringing that perspective to these narratives, books you're reading, TV you're watching, movies you're watching. Because uh, anytime that's illuminated, you know, I just think it's great. And it's illuminating mm -hmm. the story, right? Yeah. And I mean, just to jump, obviously, like to the, the things we've been harping on, Again, one of the reasons why this is so important in our kind of like critiques of, because you know, I mean, obviously, like film criticism does have criticism as a part of it, and a lot of people, for example, love the Joker. Yeah. The problem that we're highlighting here, yeah, and I want you to talk about this more than I do, because again, you're the one who I think really articulated this so well the first time we talked about this, is that the Joker only further creates metrics of disassociation, mm -hmm. encourages it. Yeah. Instead of like what Teddy goes through, where he's finally confronted with the truth, yep. in all of its ugliness, right? Yeah, it doesn't yeah, yeah. mean that the that we just ignore. Because in some sense, I feel like you can misread what we're saying. It's like, well, obviously the Joker like had a lot of trauma and things that were going on with his life, but the failure of the Joker is not. And again, he's the Joker, so he's not necessarily supposed to be a good guy. But yeah, the failure of the Joker is that it never actually brings you around to recognizing like the hurt <laughs> yeah in a certain way and i think that it just causes it just creates more cycles of violence it's well, never no interrupted yeah so. and again yeah to that movie like the whole issue is batman's journey is the opposite he's also mm -hmm. had trauma and he's constantly working out the ethics of you know how do i manage this and mm -hmm. how do i not repeat it and blah 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 uh and joker is the great you know foil to that's right exposing him to his you know contradictions or whatever absolutely but <clears throat> yeah and 
And again, it's just going deeper, and just like in this movie, where if Teddy doesn't choose uh, to maintain the the dissociation, mm-hmm. right? He's mm-hmm. not maintaining the protection, and the Joker is just pushing further into I'm the Joker. I'm going to be so I'm going to protect myself with this character I've created to protect me from further trauma, even if that means, or obviously because it means hurting other people in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so looking at that um, in terms of how it impacts other people and how selfish it is mm-hmm. uh, in self-protection, especially mm-hmm. when it's conscious, obviously it's not always conscious in these extreme situations, right. but what the narrative of Joker is that's disturbing is the you know celebration of the, like some kind of revolution. That's right, yeah. Um, and the ugliness of, of that um, is horrifying in its own way. Yeah, and again, it's like, and how do we interrupt violence with peace is the question. I mean, that's the, I yep. mean, obviously when it comes to protest, like there's a place for it, but the, the idea of peace is itself the protest. It's the, you can't protest violence with violence, right? Yep. Um, I, that's the, I mean, that's something that as a person who thinks about ethics of war all yeah, the time, right. I struggle with that. And again, yep. it's, I mean, it's not Well, to, could come back to what Teddy does at exactly. the end of this movie, right? Uh, to live as a monster or die as a good man, in a way, he is choosing the, at the, his best. Uh, again, it's a little mysterious, but I think why Scorsese also embraced the story to tell um, is that Teddy, in his own way, is choosing the only kind of peace he can find that's true and real is to go through with this procedure, whether that means death or just becoming a vegetable or whatever uh, they, they do to him. But <clears throat> he knows in his own way, like the right thing to do um, is to, you know, uh, to walk this out, right? Mm-hmm. Walk out the consequences of this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Marty, like he's ensuring us, I think, throughout the movie, uh, all of the spiritual subtext and the images that this is a journey for him. And this was a labyrinth and this was a choice that he seems mm-hmm. to be making that he, he comes to. Um, but even what, you know, one of the things I had written, which I think maybe argue against what I just said, but just thinking of like based on guilt, which was, you know, killing his wife, feeling like he, he was the responsible for his kid's death. You know, the only good or right thing for him to do is to die for his own sins. Right. Mm. Um, and since guilt is based on the law and the law is death, according to Paul. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, that that's all he knows to do because he cannot forgive himself. Mm. Uh, or accept forgiveness, right? Very good. But I think Marty's putting that all over the place. Um, that, you know, in Marty's Catholic framework, like, he is forgiven whether he can forgive himself or not. Uh, but in not being able to mm-hmm. receive that and no judgment, who can judge him for not being mm-hmm. able to forgive himself in that situation? Mm-hmm. But he is kind of walking out mm-hmm. um, his own consequences, mm-hmm. you know, as though he deserves them. Yeah. Even though Marty's screaming throughout the movie, like, you know, we're all sinners. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we all need forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is what it looks like. Yeah. And so in a certain sense, and maybe this is a big question, you kind of answered it already, but as Marty, as, as Marty shows Teddy walking further in, mm-hmm. do you think in the end, like Teddy finds redemption? As, well, as the a, final image, right, is the lighthouse. Right. Um, and then it's Marty's, you know, name. So I think uh, him framing the lighthouse at the end um means means what it is you mm. know um and that there is something more um and that there is again without without directly preaching a sermon at the end of it uh or telling us what to think 
he just gives us that image. And I think that image is why he was telling the story mm-hmm. and that the lighthouse is, um, you know, what we're, what we're looking for, mm-hmm. um, and is what, you know, is the light. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, yeah. Yes and no, in a certain <laughs> sense, like maybe not Teddy specifically, but redemption is the end of. Well, of for sure. But even again, Teddy versus Joker, right? Yeah. Teddy's willing at least to embrace the consequences of his actions. Uh, even if it's, you know, uh, he's, he isn't overtly receiving Christ mm. and communion, um, and allowing for that. He's not, he doesn't feel like he deserves that, but unlike the Joker, he's not taking it out to the streets to gather other jokers, mm-hmm. um, and have a violent revolution. He's, you know, walking out, you mm-hmm. know, his consequences. Mm. Um, and, and Marty's, I think, uh, because Marty, if you watch Raging Bull, we get into that conversation, uh, is very or most non-judgmental uh, filmmaker, I believe, mm-hmm. and feels like that lighthouse definitely suggests hope mm. um, mm-hmm. and redemption, even if you know Teddy can't find it within himself. Yeah, I, yeah, and I think that's the powerful part of the movie is that, like, the best movies, like at the end, kind of leave you with a sense of, like, there's a tragedy happening, but there's a sense of all. I think if obviously it's not a film. It is a film in a certain sense, but it's first a musical. But Les Mis, like Miserable, like they they have that movement of like the tragedy of what's happening with the the main character Jean Valjean and his death, and but the redemption of his life has been this long arc of somebody who was a criminal. Um, you know, I think the line is you know a man who's turned from hating to yeah 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 like finding his redemption in this one girl that he adopted from um from like you know from this whole arc of his story like a man of hating to a man of love. And in a certain sense, like the end is this this scene of the of the barricade, right? Which mm-hmm. is the scene of heaven, and um, mm-hmm. the challenge of, of like again of good film is to to lead us into a sense of like of of that kind of movement of redemption that I, I really value, <laughs> and you yeah, don't no see doubt. a ton. And I mean, the question, I mean, one of the pushbacks I've I've received at least some from some of the comments on the on the show is that one of the things that it sounds like we're doing is like, for example, like with beasts of no nation, like this stuff does happen, obviously. Um, like the Joker has some serious complaints that are, are legitimate against the world around him and things like that. And none of us, like we're not denying that in either of those podcasts, we weren't trying to deny that, but the goal of it is to think about what does actual redemption look like instead of just saying like, let's yeah. go, let's just move away from this. How do we move into it? Mm-hmm. Like so, the the incarnational approach of like entering into pain and suffering in order to redeem it, not to continue it, absolutely, or to perpetuate mm-hmm. it, right? So the interrupting of cycles of violence, I think, is an important important one. So, you mentioned a Christological thing earlier as I was talking that you wanted to come back to. Did you yeah, already cover I think, that? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I, I just want to make sure that you got that because yeah. I, I wanted to hear that in a little bit. Yeah. Um, there's one last piece that I really liked here. This is a philosophical idea. I don't know. If if uh, people picked up on this, but um, in some sense, like m- like modernism, especially modern philosophy, has all been been about like separating madness from civility or madness from rationality. Um, and one of the key modern philosophers c- comes up with a phrase that most people have heard of: "I think, therefore I am." Uh, Rene Descartes, and he talks like th- this. Film seems to be kind of a working out of this the consequences of like Descartes in mm-hmm. a real, real powerful sense because. Like Teddy doesn't really know who he is mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, in a certain sense, and so like the the real limit of 
the modern world where we think of ourselves as these isolated self-enclosed individuals is is laid bare as kind of false because ultimately teddy is who he is in relationship to what he has done yeah, yeah, yeah. and who he's been around the reality of who he is is not who he has created himself to be like this this fbi agent but rather the character of um the person who's who's been a part of really horrific stuff either yeah. off perpetuating it and experiencing it on both ends in some sense it's the limit of the modern imagination to fully account for the madness within um like just contemporary contemporary life which is again obviously no for sure awful. yeah and just that sense of identity especially when it's inherently self-protective right right even if it's conscious if we mm -hmm. lean into an identity like this protects me um and also protects me from doing real work mm -hmm. uh then that's an interesting because it is you know we are so identity driven right um and it's really interesting to to contemplate yeah absolutely absolutely well okay. it's, yeah. a, it's a great it's a great movie like uh, hopefully if you've watched it before getting to this point if not um we did warn you. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but we'd love to hear your thoughts. Did we miss anything? Are there questions that you would like to see us answer as it relates to this? It's a big film. There's a lot of ideas. I mean, hopefully, if as you're watching this, one nothing else, if you take away the fact that there's so much in here, just from the images to the themes, theologically, philosophically, um, psychologically, in this film. And we hope that you'll watch it if you um, haven't already. Um, and see what we see what you think. And that yeah. kind of thing. Any final thoughts as we're kind of closing out here? No, man. I think I'm good. Good. Yeah. Well, this will not be the last Scorsese film that we cover. Um, we obviously right. have Silence that we're going to cover in the spring, but um, listen out for some others. Uh, he's one of the favorites here at the Roadshow. Um, but next time you'll be hearing us, uh, we'll be talking about Halloween Ends and uh, celebrating our year-long um, journey here. That's so right. we hope you'll join us then. Uh, in two weeks, we'll be covering that. Uh, Halloween Ends obviously comes out this week, but we'll be covering it on the podcast in two. So uh, leave us a review if you'd like to uh, support the podcast. It's the best way for people to find us, and you can be doing us a real solid there. But until next time, stay safe, everyone, and we will see you at the movies. Take care, everyone. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us on Art House Roadshow. We'll see you next time.